how are you handling everything? And, you know, do you have any stories to share to really shed light on what you guys are going through? Um, well, I haven't cried today, so that's a start. <laughs> Medicine Remix. 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 One month to the day after New York City recorded its first COVID-19 death, the city's death toll has soared past 10,000. We'll see what the situation's like. I heard that our volume is just exploding and we have so many people in the hallways that are all COVID positive. The death toll from coronavirus has jumped dramatically tonight after New York City said it has been undercounting those killed by the disease. Welcome to Inside the Hospital a Medicine Remixed original podcast miniseries that focuses on healthcare workers on the front line of the current pandemic and gaining insight from their unique perspectives. In our last episode, you heard from Dr. Taylor Held Sargent, a pediatric infectious disease fellow in Chicago, who also has a PhD looking at human coronavirus entry, and she taught us about how COVID-19 actually gets into a human cell. Yeah, so I actually looked at SARS coronavirus, the first one, but then also comparing it to NL63, which is another one of those mild coronaviruses. And I was trying to figure out or look at differences and similarities between those two to see if we could figure out why one was more mild and one was more severe, because they actually use the same receptor, that same doorknob to get into cells. They use the same protein. NL63 and both of the SARS coronaviruses do. They all use what's called ACE2 um, to get into cells, even though they have such very different outcomes in the end. In our first episode, we took you to the front lines when we talked to New York City emergency room physician, Dr. Calvin Sun, and learned about how humans who are infected with COVID-19 enter or try to enter the emergency departments in the epicenter of this pandemic. It is horrific. The board was horrific. The fact that EMS stretchers waited five hours outside the emergency room just to get triaged. So imagine calling 911, expecting to see a doctor immediately, only to wait in line outside in the dark at 30, 40 degree weather, waiting to be triaged, where you can still be sent to the waiting room Whoa. or wait in the emergency room where you still have to wait for a provider or doctor, uh, for anyone to see you. That is the reality. On today's episode, we're gonna take you from the front lines in the emergency departments to the last line of defense for COVID-19 patients, the ICU. I talked to Gargi Mehta, a critical care physician assistant at one of the largest hospitals in New York City. So I am a critical care physician assistant and I'm currently sort of the manager of the medical ICU advanced practice providers, which encompasses both the nurse practitioners and the physician assistants in the critical care department. And so I do my clinical work, pick up shifts, and then I do all the administrative operational things as well with staffing, education, anything that's under the um, you know admin umbrella. I asked Gargi what a typical day has been like over the anything but typical past few weeks at one of the busiest ICUs in one of the busiest hospitals in the current epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. The consistent thing is that there's nothing consistent. I'd put it that way. Um, so you, you get there usually around 6.45 in the morning, start getting sign out. If a new unit has opened, you should expect to get slammed with seven to 10 admissions. I'd say 90% of those are gonna get intubated upon arrival. Mm -hmm. um, so you're sort of mentally preparing, getting prepped for rounds, 
managing the acute patients with your critical care physician and if you happen to have a fellow as well. So you're getting um, all your data together, you're presenting very efficiently on rounds so that you can get through your 17 to 18 ICU level patients to then essentially execute the plans, start managing the ventilators throughout the day because your attending might be pulled to do something else and help another attending out with intubations that are happening. Throughout that time frame, you are putting in central lines, putting hemodialysis catheters for people that have, you know, unfortunately gone into like multi-organ failure and need to start dialysis. Um, so it's a lot of just clinical, in and out of the rooms, following up with the nurses, getting used to all these new ventilators that we've been using from the OR. And it's a lot of like learning and executing at the same time to literally get to the end of your shift to now give sign out for the night team. Yeah, I mean, it, it just seems like a roller coaster. Um, first of all, what kind of a patient requires admission to the ICU? And then kind of what does their hospital course look like? Sure, sure, that's a great question. So essentially what the, the three weeks of data that's been gathered at our institution and sort of pearls we've gathered from essentially around the world is that you don't want to wait for an emergent intubation. That is the like, first and foremost. Think of it very sort of binary. There's invasive, the tube in your throat, hooked up to a breathing machine, right? Then there's the other arm of this, which is the non-invasive, which is self-explanatory. It's things that are on your face, in your nose, on your mouth, forcing air in, but it's not going down your throat. So there's, there's that. So with the arm that is not hooked up to the breathing machine, the people that are wearing masks, the people that, you know, out in the community have obstructive sleep apnea, you're, you might have a mask you wear at night. So prevents you from having these like, you know, sleep interruptions, or there's a, a nasal cannula that everyone's very familiar with that gives oxygen through your nose. So right. those, if the requirements on those uh, devices are continuing to increase, an intervention should happen earlier rather than to you know later to prevent sort of emergent situation. The specifics of that is just based on your institution. Some might say 60% oxygenation, ring the alarm bell. Someone should go evaluate this patient or any other signs of sort of, you know, you start seeing multi-organ injury, you know, coincide. So there's a lot of intervening before a code situation on the floor. And that's primarily to protect the patient and the staff because you have to assume that running into these rooms was an old paradigm. Running into these rooms now means you stop, you don, you put all your personal protective equipment on, which can take a few minutes. So you have to take everything into context and shift the paradigm into like what makes sense in this new environment. So intervening early allows for like less disastrous emergent situations later. Right. So the threshold then I guess is pretty low to put a tube down. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, there's no benefit at this point to just waiting and watching because that's going to require labor intensity of constantly being in the room, which sort of defeats the purpose of trying to mitigate an emergent situation. If you already can foresee the trajectory saying, you know what, this person is 75 years old. 
yeah. I anticipate this person probably going to get tired, not going to be able to breathe on their own, then I don't need to wait for a day for that to happen. I can do this in a controlled, relatively stable, semi-elective, emergent environment. Yeah. And then, you know, like, what's the threshold for like a younger patient? Are you basically going off of their oxygenation, like their pulse ox or, you know, just their other vital signs? Um, is there a clear cut algorithm for getting a tube? Um, so there's suggestions, you know, that each institution is developing based on what we're seeing. Nobody fits a cookie cutter algorithm. What we use it is as a guide because like I said, you will have patients that will meet the low oxygenation saturation, but be completely comfortable. Or, you you know, so you want to take everything into context. I think the, the drive home point is that if you see a big change from the time they got to the floor to the time that you are now being asked to evaluate that patient, that's the important delta. If someone comes in and feels okay, and now their oxygen requirement has threefold increase, that's concerning. Not necessarily the number, because it's not one size fits all. Yeah, and it seems like this infection is manifesting so different in you know different people. Are you mostly seeing older patients in your unit or are you also seeing younger patients? I'm sure it's, it's kind of all over the place, but yeah, what are you seeing? I'm surprised by seeing younger patients. I'll put it that way. We've, we've seen 18 to 90. Wow. <laughs> Some of the younger patients have come in profoundly hypoxic in that low oxygen levels. And I just should preface that I work in the ICU. So what I'm saying is a subset of people. I don't want to scare people, but I'm seeing the sickest patients of the institution, not the other people that are coming to the medical floors. Some do fine and get discharged. That happens. But so keep in mind, when I see a patient in the ICU, it's because they have obviously failed whatever regimen they've been given or they're just declining. So the young adults that I've seen in the ICU have come up, immediately had been hooked up to the breathing machine because they were labored, they had worsening oxygenation requirements, and at the institution that I'm currently at, we can try to prone as many people to prevent sort of this intubation that's happening across the institution. We can also offer VV ECMO, which is sort of uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's allowing your lungs to rest during this massive inflammatory response due to this viral COVID pneumonia. In other words, ECMO is a specialized machine that pumps and oxygenates a patient's blood outside the body, allowing the heart and lungs to rest. It works by removing blood from the patient's body, pumping it through an artificial lung where it receives high concentrations of oxygen and carbon dioxide is removed before returning it back to the body. There's an ECMO team, phenomenal, and they work very closely and we have like a very clear-cut criteria, like age, no other signs of organ failure and whatnot to determine like who is gonna benefit from this therapy. So it's very layered approach. Someone comes into the unit and we've done this phenomenal job on the walls of the unit. Because we don't have family visitors, we're able to write the data with a marker. 
on the ICU doors. So we're putting up front, what is their creatinine, which is a reflection of their uh, renal function? Are these patients a candidate for being prone, which is a fancy way of saying flipped upside down? When you lay on your belly, right. you have better oxygenation, eliminate some of the dead space, mismatch. So is this patient a candidate for receiving ECMO? right, what we just talked about. And we go through this in a very systematic way so that when a patient decompensates, we have an understanding, sort of an aerial view of like what this patient has received, where the patient is currently, and what the patient would be a candidate for. So you're not just doing everything for someone that may not meet criteria but you're doing the right things for the patient that you think would be the best responders to the therapies you want to give them. Gotcha. And when a patient's on ECMO, this might be a stupid question, but are they also intubated? No, that's definitely not a stupid question. So uh, some institutions are able to walk their ECMO candidates based on what kind of catheter they use. Physical therapy actually walks the ECMO patients, which is phenomenal. Um, In this case, it gets tricky because you have someone who's COVID positive so that you don't want them to be waltzing around the unit. Right. Um, So we also have found that a lot of these patients have required pretty impressive levels of sedation. And so um, sometimes you can get them liberated off the ventilator and then decannulate them, remove the ECMO cannulas. In some of the cases, we're doing the reverse because we want to make sure that they can tolerate coming off the ECMO circuit. They've given enough time for lung healing and actually give them an early tracheostomy so we can do a safer wean from the ventilator. And a tracheostomy is for the people that don't know? Absolutely. So a tracheostomy is an artificial hole through your throat hooked up to the ventilator. So you are still receiving mechanical ventilation support, but it's much more comfortable and it allows the clinical team to sometimes have you know, an easier time weaning you from the sedation. These people are on really heavy sedatives, um, deeply, deeply medical comas because we don't want them to pull out the breathing tube inside their throats. And so that A, causes aerosolization issues. And if they're not ready to have the breathing tube removed, they're at risk for having the breathing tube put back in in a very emergent situation. So allowing an early tracheostomy, just anecdotally, from my two or three weeks, we've made some strides with getting these people off the ventilator. And it's not to say that in a couple of weeks or maybe several months, they'll have the cannula removed from their throat. Got it. Is there an average length of time that you're seeing patients needing to be on a ventilator for with this infection? Given our ICUs have opened up three weeks ago, approximately, there's been a few cases where there's been a successful extubation, which just means you remove the breathing tube and the patient does fine on very minimal supplemental oxygen or they got transferred to room air, whatever the case may be. Generally speaking, most patients have required more than a week of the breathing tube, closer to 10 to 14 days. And a subset of that easily are receiving tracheostomies because, again, it's suboptimal to keep someone in a medically induced coma for that long because they're going to be that much more debilitated. 
and you're going to sort of have to start over again by trying to wake them up, try to do a, a safe trial of liberating them from the vent. The tracheostomy allows for that to happen in a more safe manner. Once they're, you know, have a tracheostomy and they're relatively stable, we're trying to figure out what the next step is and where then to transfer them so we can make room for the new patient that just came in that got intubated or needs tenuous status to be monitored. Got it. And for the younger patients that you're seeing, is is there any pattern at all to that cohort of patients as far as medical history or smoking history or, or anything, or is there really no rhyme or reason? The younger patients we have seen, everyone's trying to ask, do you have any history of vaping, smoking? Because as you know, in the last several months, um, vaping associated lung injury is a big, big hot topic that has also caused a lot of sort of respiratory failure. Um, the other issue has been obesity. Mm. Young adults who are obese, I have clinically seen, have done worse, meaning yeah. they are on the breathing machine. Um, so that I would say, obviously there's a few people that have been in the young adult category that are not obese, but for whatever reason, ended up having a pretty impressive response to getting COVID pneumonia. One of the biggest challenges faced by many hospitals around the country, especially in New York and other COVID-19 hotspots, is not only having enough ventilators, but also having enough physical space in the ICUs. I recently talked to one of my attendings from residency, and he told me that they converted the orthopedic floor into a COVID-19 overflow ICU. I asked Gargi what the situation was like at her hospital, and keep in mind this interview was done two weeks ago. Uh, as of Thursday, we've now had our fifth ICU open. I anticipate by Monday we should be on to number six. So we're at the data I'm going to mention is old because it was mentioned on Thursday of this week. Yeah. We had 146 ICU level patients of which 116 were vented. And are all of those COVID-19 patients? Absolutely. Um, so it's been a real challenge to staff all these ICUs. But I think we've done a phenomenal job of just, you know, figuring it out, how to stick an NP or a PA 24 seven coverage in all these expanding ICUs. Gotcha. One question I had was, are the patients usually intubated when they come to the ICU or are they getting intubated in the ICU? Uh, it's a little bit of both. What's happening is that in the emergency room, as soon as the patient hits the door, it's a very quick decision tree. There's like no room for pontificating. Let's see how he does in like eight hours because A, we want to make sure that ER is always decanted. The second you start having an overflow of COVID ER patients, you're asking for trouble. Yes. So number one, can we wait? And if the answer is no, then the patient actually gets intubated in the ER. They get intubated in the ER, they stabilize as best as they can, and that comes up intubated into the ICU. The other admission looks like a patient who has gone perhaps to the medical floor because they're stable enough. Now, if at some point the critical care consult team gets called for this patient and they're saying at this point, we need to get the patient up within the hour to the ICU, prepare for intubation. That is the ideal. And I'll tell you why, because in the ICU, we have negative pressure rooms. We have staff that is well-versed in medications for intubation 
for gaining access immediately. The APP might be standing by and can help with putting a central line and arterial line once the intubation is done by the two intensivists. And we can then start the vasoactive drip, start doing all this in a way that's relatively normal in any other setting in the ICU. We just happen to have COVID on top of it. So it's just more control to do it in the ICU. Got it. You mentioned the negative pressure rooms. Why is that important? The, the way I would think about it is that a negative pressure room allows for the proper ventilation and you don't have this aerosolization risk spread in and out. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of simplification of it. We really try to maintain negative pressure rooms in the ICU if the patient, for whatever reason, is coming up to us with a high suspicion of COVID pneumonia because they just got swabbed and the PCR might take a couple hours, but they just got intubated and we think clinically they look like this, we will still use a negative pressure room in the ICU. It's not about necessarily, oh, they have to have the diagnosis on the swab immediately because it's gestalt, like this person's acting like this clinically. So the negative pressure room allows for that sort of inability for the cross ventilation from happening you don't want your staff to be infected. You don't want the other patients, whomever else is on the unit. One of the reasons we wanted to have Gargi on this series is because the media has done a great job covering doctors and nurses during this pandemic, but hasn't really highlighted the invisible workforce on the offensive line of this biological war, or as Gargi calls it, the invisible 50. When I say invisible 50, I think what people need to understand is that it's an equation. And in, in every scenario, you strive for 100% in every scenario, COVID or non. The 50% is the most obvious, right? It's your nurse and it's your physician. But the invisible 50 are the physician assistants, the nurse practitioners in the critical care setting, the respiratory therapists, the clinical pharmacists, and in some situations, the, the, phys- the physical therapists that are at this moment not coming to the COVID ICUs, but there's there's so much, the nutritionists, all these people contribute in a meaningful way to progress patient care and offer insight into what needs to be done to optimize this patient's clinical condition. So the Invisible 50 have a lot to offer in terms of autonomy, contribution, clinical gestalt, actual execution of plan, maneuvering, troubleshooting, when your critical care attending is unavailable because they're very swamped doing the consults, managing the other patient in the other room. Case in point, two weeks ago, when our critical care ICU started to blow up, I was in the middle of putting in a central line for a patient that just came up intubated. In the middle of putting in the central line, the nurse comes in and says, by the way, the patient downstairs is also crapping out. I said, okay, can you tell the attending? She goes, no, the attending's two doors down intubating another patient. Yeah. So you're seeing staff really trying to do as much as they can because we're limited. And so I think when you strengthen your APP, that physician now has like this burden taken off of them because I'm gonna go manage these other sick patients and temporize what I can and stabilize them so that that physician can focus on what is the most utmost priority. We come back, we run the list, we sort of reconnect and go through what has happened. And I think that model has allowed for 
extending ICU level care beyond the ICU walls. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think you painted a really good picture there. I mean, even just with that that last anecdote of just how crazy things are right now. So with that being said, how do you guys handle this? I mean, I, I don't know that anybody's really ever seen anything like this. So like, you know, what is the morale like? How are you guys like supporting each other through this? And, you know, I obviously, you know, we're all on social media. We're connected that way. We're hearing stories of our fellow providers, you know, being affected by this or, you know, worst case scenarios, people dying from this. How are you handling everything? And, you know, do you have any stories like, you know, to, to share to really shed light on what you guys are going through? Um, well, I haven't cried today, so that's a start. Yeah. <laughs> I think the first two weeks were the pinnacle of stress in my career. And I did a residency for physician assistants in surgery. So that was insane. But this is stress like I've never imagined. I myself... Uh, within a few days of having our ICUs blow up, you know, received a call from my fertility clinic and they told me they've canceled my IVF cycle that was supposed to start within a day. Um, I cried for a few minutes. A fellow walked by and stood six feet away and offered her condolences. <laughs> um, and it's just this sort of beautiful, bittersweet, organized chaos. You know, I cried. I told her what happened. About five minutes later, we both got pulled to respective patient rooms, and then that was that. People are stressed out with their significant others losing their jobs, their parents are sick, um, their kids are home, but they're coming up to an ICU shift. Um, I've come on days off because someone called me to say, this is insane, I need help. And these are the times I think, like, what does a good leader do? And this is what they do. Like you just show up. And I think when I understood that by showing up, I got the support I wanted. The team recognized when you have a leader that supports you, guess what? A leader gets support from their team. And I think understanding that we're gonna be stressed and sometimes be a bit snippy to one another should be taken into context and no one should take it personal. People have texted each other, how are you? Are you okay? Do you need anything? Do you need a couple of hours to yourself? I can cover the unit. Do you need to take lunch? Let me bring you water. Um, I've never seen this level of camaraderie in the 10 years of my professional career. Um, and it's cross professions. It's the fellows helping out the PAs, the NPs helping out the pharmacists. It's just this beautiful thing that's in the center, center of complete chaos. Yeah, I can't even imagine, you know, what what uh, what it must be like. Um, normally, I, I think, you know, a quote unquote, like sick day for a healthcare provider is like, is not really a thing. But in the context of what's going on now, is there a protocol when somebody on your team gets sick? And what does that look like? About 10 days ago, brand new ICU opened up and I had two providers pick up overtime to staff it. One of them at 2 p.m. texts me, hey, Gargi, I'm really sorry, but I don't feel well. Went up there, I said, you don't have to apologize, <laughs> first of all. The protocol is you have to leave the unit. You go uh, to this sort of annex, You there's a protocol of being swabbed, they run through a list of what are your symptoms, and then triage you to saying, are you at risk for a high COVID exposure, any PPE breach, things of that nature, and 
based on this algorithm, you get tested and you get sent home. You know, you have to be asymptomatic, afebrile for 72 hours prior to returning. What did we do when she left? Anything we would do on a normal day. We all banded together. We ran between the 15th floor and the 16th floor, literally taking care of ICU patients, helping with admissions. You can't complain at that point. It is what it is. And I think when people understand the concept of solidarity, they get through a bad shift easier because it's not someone's fault. It's just the nature of what it is right now. On top of the overwhelming number of patients infected with COVID-19 that's stressing the healthcare system, the number of healthcare providers getting sick on the front lines or even worse, dying, has prompted a desperate plea for healthcare workers of all kinds from all over the country to volunteer, especially in those parts of the country that are being hit the hardest, like New York City. My wife and I recently submitted an application to volunteer there to offer our help from the sidelines calling from New York City Health and Hospitals. Thank you for recently volunteering through Governor Cuomo's COVID-19 crisis to assist New York City. We are inviting a dedicated workers like you. You could go online to start the positioning process at covid.nychealthandhospitals.org slash volunteer. Given Gargi's experience in the epicenter of this pandemic, I asked her about her thoughts on people without critical care experience volunteering and what else we can do to help. A, I want to say thank you to both of you for even asking the question of what you can do to help because I think there, there's this like subset of society that's just obsessed with watching the news and paralyzed. And so you guys are like refreshing in that you're saying no more paralysis. What can we do? Yeah. So A, thank you. Uh, it's refreshing. You know, I think right now it would be great to have actual physical support like we need human beings to help and I think if that's something that people are really willing to do and somehow learn to survive and eventually thrive in an environment that's totally different for them an yeah. orthopedic surgeon in critical care it's possible it's possible listen <laughs> I reset our router three weeks ago anything is possible <laughs> <laughs> um, again, it's, it's, it's such a supportive system. You're never uh, without help. Your autonomy is based on your comfort level. Yeah. Um, I think exposure is another thing. Having these conversations is not for nothing. It, it's, it's more helpful than people realize. You're, you're talking about important information. You're doing it in a way that's constructive. Oh, thank you. I think having you guys hammer the social distancing component of this, which is sort of fallen deaf on a few people in our society. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing. You know, another thing as I'm brainstorming is, I hope people stop smoking right now, if I can just say one thing. <laughs> if you needed yet another reason stop to stop baby, smoking. Stop smoking. Or tell yourself, can I show up to a hospital and be told, guess what, we don't have a ventilator. Guess what, there's no more beds. Guess what, your orthopedic surgeon is going to be innovating you. <laughs> the memes are phenomenal. Yeah, along with uh, healthcare providers, I think the meme makers have been working around the clock, so we also appreciate them. That's what gets me through the day. Yeah, the morale, the resiliency, the sort of acknowledgement recognitions, like, you know, rejuvenate us, that's great. But it's the COVID memes that really want to make you get up every day, scroll through a few, and then go to work. Yes, just that little boost in immunity that we need. <laughs> I've actually shown um, a few of the uh, uh, COVID memes to our non 
critical care staff that's joined. I was like, is this going to be you? <laughs> it's terrifying on, on all accounts, for sure. If uh, if you wind up seeing me in your ICU, then... <laughs> First I'll show you a meme. Exactly. I, I will be a living meme. <laughs> All jokes aside, since the inception of COVID-19 units in early March, advanced practice providers, or APPs like Gargi, have been staffing the ICUs 24-7, and this fight would not be possible without them on the front lines. We want to make sure all the healthcare providers, essential workers, and volunteers out there feel appreciated and valued, even though they may not be getting the credit they deserve. The resilience and camaraderie of these individuals is super inspiring and should give us all hope that we will make it through this unprecedented time. Believe it. Awesome. Well, best of luck. Keep doing the great work that you're doing and um, be safe. Awesome. Take care. Talk to you soon. Medicine Remix fam, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of Inside the Hospital. We appreciate you tuning in. And if you got something out of this episode, please share it with your family and friends. Big ups to all the healthcare providers out there risking their lives to fight for humanity right now. And big ups to all of you at home firing one of the biggest weapons we have against this thing right now, social distancing. If you have any questions about anything COVID-19 related or otherwise, leave us a voice message on Anchor or hit us up on social media. Thanks again to our guest for today's episode, Gargi Mehta. If you want to learn more about the value advanced practice providers can bring hospitals or about her experience in the ICU, hit her up on LinkedIn or email her at gargihmehta, that's G-A-R-G-I-H-M-E-H-T-A at gmail.com. And we'll have it linked up in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. This episode was edited by yours truly, Reach the MCMD, yeah. and mixed slash produced by our very own KT. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, stay home, and keep it locked with the one and only Medicine Remixed.